Hello, and welcome to The Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 41, The Jutland Controversy. So we ended off last time talking about the chaotic night action which saw the end of the Battle of Jutland. Desperate to escape the clutches of the British Grand Fleet, Reinhard Scheer opted to make a lunge for Horn's Reef. Using his dreadnoughts as the battering ram, the German high seas fleet tore its way through the English flotillas. In the violent clashes which followed, the outmatched destroyers did their best against their larger adversaries. It was a game of thrust and parry. The German crews, better trained and equipped to fight nocturnal naval battles, held no quarter. Destroyers were sunk, rammed, and collided with one another as the dreadnought parade marched its way home. In response, the destroyers gave as best they got, pounding the upper works of the battleships with their deck guns in an effort to slow the enemy breakthrough. Despite their valiant defense, nothing was to deter Reinhard Scheer from escaping. By 2 a.m. on June 1, 1916, the high seas fleet broke into open water, leaving a trail of destruction in its wake. The German escape plan was daring, but one cannot help but be impressed with the skill in which it was carried out. At a cost of just three light cruisers and one pre-dreadnought battleship, 88 German vessels were safely back in port before lunchtime on June the 1st. Making their escape all the more impressive was that their adversaries, Admirals John Jellicoe and David Beatty, had not the slightest hint of their whereabouts. Two hours later, at 4 a.m. that morning, Grand Fleet Commander-in-Chief John Jellicoe received the news. Admiralty codebreakers informed him that the enemy had slipped away to the southeast and entered their channels just before sunrise. The Battle of Jutland was over. As word spread among the fleet, it brought a wave of crippling disappointment. The general sense is being that the British Empire had been robbed of its victory. Yet the larger question, which no one could answer, was how it fell apart so quickly. One minute, the Germans were being pounded. The fully deployed Grand Fleet was firing in unison, salvo after salvo in a continuous wave of thunder. Not only had the enemy managed to survive, but somehow they had slipped right through their fingers, never to be seen again for the remainder of the war. For the British sailor, whether an officer on deck or a stoker below in the boilers, the news was as equally devastating as it was confusing. How did it fall apart, and who was to blame? As the Grand Fleet headed home, they would not be able to report the second coming of Trafalgar. David Beatty had lost a third of his battle cruisers, and several armored cruisers and destroyers remained unaccounted for. The following morning, Britain would learn that the enemy fleet had escaped, and that the Royal Navy had taken tremendous loss in a battle few knew had taken place. The decisive naval battle of the Great War had been fought, but who emerged the winner remained to be seen. This week will be our final episode dedicated to the Battle of Jutland, and if it seems like we've spent an exuberant amount of time on it, you are correct in noticing. From episode 37 to 41, we have spent a total of 41,540 words, over 51 pages of manuscript, talking about an event which barely lasted 12 hours. I hate to admit, but I'm all jutlanded out by this point. So today's episode will act as a summary for some of the things we've talked about. What I want to focus on is what happened after the fleets returned home. The Jutland postmortem is one of the more fascinating aspects of the battle. It's where the historiography comes from, and really, what makes Jutland the Rubik's Cube that it is. In short, both navies claimed it a victory. The Germans based their case on fewer casualties, and the British theirs on overall strategy. However, a more complicated question arose soon after. If Jutland was a victory, then what kind of victory was it, and for whom? 
If you believe the German account, then you will cite statistics as evidence. The German fleet was outmatched in every regard. It sunk more ships than it lost, and escaped annihilation through superior seamanship. On the other hand, if you believe it was a British victory, then you will place the battle in a wider context. The Grand Fleet suffered more casualties, yes. However, its stranglehold on German commerce remained unbroken. As the Germans retreated, 143 British warships continued to sweep the North Sea with unchallenged supremacy. Germany remained in the death grip of the maritime blockade, and the strategic picture remained much the same. But what became a bitter pill for the English was that Jutland did not quite gel with the Nelsonian mold. In 1805, Nelson destroyed an enemy fleet without loss of a single ship. The threat of a cross-channel invasion had been thwarted, and the home island saved from whatever Bonaparte was planning on doing. However, in 1916, the British Navy took heavy losses, and the enemy fleet continued its threatening existence. For the English citizen, schooled to believe in the invincibility of its naval power, the fact that Germany's fleet remained was all they needed to hear before being sent into hysterics. Thus, the Jutland Controversy was born. The Jutland Controversy is a uniquely British phenomenon. In short, it is a term historians use to refer to the debate surrounding their British performance at Jutland, specifically the Admiralship of John Jellicoe and David Beatty. To this day, the controversy is alive and well, and there are sympathizers on both sides. When it first broke, it was Beatty who enjoyed the initial wave of support, his supporters arguing that he had done the most to ensure victory, only to watch helplessly as Jellicoe fumbled the pass. On the other hand, Jellicoe's supporters argue that Beatty had nearly brought the fleet to ruin, and was redeemed only by Jellicoe's tactical decision-making. The Jutland controversy is a fascinating debate, and we're going to spend quite a bit of time talking about it. However, I plan on stretching the controversy beyond an examination of the Admiral's tactics. Instead, we're going to spend our time exploring three principal questions. The first question relates to casualties. Why were British losses so much higher than German? To answer this, we'll have to explore competing design philosophies of the two navies, and why Franz Hipper's battlecruiser stayed afloat when three English battlecruisers blew up. What was the cause of these explosions, and could they have been avoided? That's question one. The second point we'll seek out is what the heck happened during Shear's nocturnal breakthrough. How was he able to get by the British without being spotted? Turns out, he was spotted, numerous times in fact, yet nothing was done. Hmm, so that's question two. Thirdly, we'll look at Jutland as a whole, and who, after tallying the points, emerged the winner. We'll reserve our judgment of the admirals until then, so we can paint a broader picture. But before setting out, we should return to the North Sea. Jellicoe and the Grand Fleet were busy collecting themselves after a chaotic night, while Shear, safely back in port, met with his admirals to toast their momentous achievement. As mentioned at the end of last day, the German Navy wasted no time in celebrating their victory at the Skagerrak. Surrounded by his admirals, Reinhard Scheer congratulated them on their historic accomplishment. For the first time in their nation's history, Germany had won a naval contest against an opponent of superior size and strength. Its army had done this in times past, but for the navy this was something totally new. Unlike the Battle of Coronel in November 1914, where von Spee's squadron outnumbered those of the English, what unfolded at the Skagerrak was the stuff of fantasy. The outnumbered High Seas Armada had gone head-to-head -head with the British Grand Fleet, and the numbers told the whole story. His admirals reported that at least three battlecruisers had been sunk, along with two armored cruisers, two light cruisers, and 13 destroyers. In exchange, German losses were relatively light. Only the pre-dreadnought Pomeran, sunk just before 2am, the light cruisers Weissbatten and Frauenlob, 
along with several destroyers were reported either damaged or missing. Although these initial reports had yet to be confirmed, the magnitude of what transpired was not lost. The German Navy had every right to be proud of their accomplishment, and Scheer wasted no time in reporting to the naval office. Within hours of its publication, a wave of excitement spread throughout Germany. The official release, which exaggerated British losses while minimizing their own, was highly sensationalized and hyperbolic. There was no mention of the loss of Lutzau, scuttled at 2am that morning, nor was there any hint that Seidelitz, Derflinger, and von der Tann were so heavily damaged they were placed into dry dock. Several dreadnoughts, which were damaged in the two encounters with Jellico, were immediately covered by canvas screens to deter prying eyes. Kaiser Wilhelm, who waited like Penelope for his fleet's return, handed out medals and awards left and right. School children were given the day off, and a curious public thronged newspaper offices to snatch up the latest news. For a time, the names Reinhard Scheer and Franz Hipper eclipsed those of Hindenburg and Ludendorff. Scheer was given the honorary name, Victor of the Skagerrak. Given the importance of maintaining wartime morale, some allowance can be given to the German euphoria, however premature it may have been. On the home front, the news was most welcome. The ongoing offensive at Verdun, despite chewing up manpower like some primordial beast, had stalled along the banks of the Meuse. Food prices in the city had skyrocketed, and the effects of the British blockade could be felt in every corner. Bread, milk, and butter were in such demand that grocers were looted for the remaining stock. In the rural country, the agricultural sector was pushed to make up the difference. However, with no fertilizer due to blockade restrictions, it was not long before their own harvest fell below quota. Low-quality grain, likewise, affected livestock, driving meat prices through the roof. Naturally, news of a naval victory brought a wave of optimism to the beleaguered public. It was taken as a sign that things might improve. Maybe the blockade would be slackened. Or maybe, if the blow was severe enough, England might come to the table. Although this was a pipe dream, it was nearly vindicated by London's poorly conceived response. Word of Shear's victory reached the English capital via Dutch news outlets, and it leaked onto the streets by 8pm that evening. Initially, the Admiralty said nothing. Jellico was still at sea, and until the commander-in-chief returned, the Admiralty would not confirm nor deny the German communique. The Admiralty thought this approach would buy them some time, at least until Jellico arrived home. Instead, its silence only fueled the flame. To the press, it was clear. The enemy was reporting a great victory. In their description, quoting the Germans, they had challenged the Grand Fleet, sunk a trio of modern warships, and then slipped the trap without significant loss. If you, the Admiralty, are not going to deny such reports, then you're either hiding something, or the Germans are telling the truth. To be fair, the Admiralty were trying their best to get a response from Jellico, but as you can imagine, he was in no mood to deal with the bureaucratic machinery and given the Admiralty's performance throughout Jutland, I can't really blame him. The Commander-in-Chief was preoccupied, collecting his fleet and sweeping for enemy stragglers. However, at 10.30am on June the 2nd, while en route to Scapaflow, Jellicoe finally replied to the Admiralty's request, and his assessment was not to their liking. The CNC confirmed the loss of three battlecruisers, but could only guess at the enemy's losses. In other words, his report seemed to confirm the German communique rather than prove it in exaggeration. With outside pressure mounting, the Admiralty did the only thing it could. At 11am on June the 2nd, it decided to publish the German communique in an official statement. Once this was on the street, there was no stopping the gossip. A firestorm spread across Britain and her empire. In the United States, the headline, Britain defeated at sea, greeted millions as they awoke the following morning. 
Here was the unshakable and invincible Royal Navy confirming the facts of her greatest adversary since Napoleon. Indeed, something significant had happened. At 11 a.m. on Friday, June the 2nd, Commander-in-Chief John Jellicoe stepped off Iron Duke and walked right into the maelstrom of public unrest. Having slept just three hours since May the 30th, he was justifiably exhausted. Although German losses had yet to be confirmed, he was horrified to learn the Admiralty published the German communique before his own. Jellicoe knew there was more to the battle than Scheer led on. The German commander failed to mention he had fled the Grand Fleet twice, and only managed to escape under nightfall. Now, in full damage control, the Admiralty was forced into drafting a second statement. While the second dispatch was hoped to clarify the situation, it only served to entice the public further. To prepare, the Admiralty confirmed that all wireless received throughout the battle would be consulted first. This was an unprecedented step, especially under wartime censorship laws. Okay, so this is good, right? Well, not quite. Because what irked the public further was the person called forth to write the assessment. Disgraced politician and former First Lord of the Admiralty, Sir Winston S. Churchill. As you'll recall from way back when, Churchill had resigned from public life after the Dardanelles fiasco made an ass of you and me. After six months on the Western Front, where he commanded a battalion following the Battles of Luz, Churchill relaunched his political career and was slowly rebuilding his reputation. As a man of letters, Churchill's assessment of Jutland was the first time the battle was put into a wider context. For the first time, the British public learned the Germans had fled the site of Jellicoe's deployed battle line, and although three battle cruisers had been lost, Grand Fleet hegemony had not been scratched. When Churchill's assessment appeared Sunday morning, the 4th of June, few were impressed with its contents. First off, it was Churchill. The man knew how to write. In being such a gifted wordsman, it would be easy for him to twist and disguise the truth. Seeing as he was already disgraced over the Dardanelles, it was not difficult for people to label his piece as a bogus scam. A chance for Churchill to get back into the good graces of the Admiralty and defend the officers he had selected, Jellicoe to command the Grand Fleet, and David Beatty, his formal naval secretary. To be clear, Churchill's commentary was authentic, and it was not written to mislead the public. But it was the press who had the hardest time accepting it. To them, Churchill was not a credible source, and having been chafed by wartime censorship, what ticked them off was the Admiralty's decision to select one of their own, and not a professional journalist to do the digging. The reason Churchill was selected was because Jellicoe strongly protested giving a civilian access to sensitive files, especially since much of the information had yet to be validated. Plus, the Admiralty was concerned that a civilian would have little appreciation for naval strategy. Churchill, on the other hand, did, and seeing as he had little else to do, he was the obvious choice. The displeasure over Churchill's report lasted less than a week. What helped placate the public was news that Berlin was having trouble maintaining its story. On June the 8th, the German naval office was forced to admit the loss of battlecruiser Lutzow, Franz Hipper's former flagship. The English had suspected this for some time. Jellicoe's sweeps had not found the vessel, while Scheer initially listed her as missing in action. Furthermore, the scenes being played out at Wilhelmshaven spoke the opposite of victory. Since their breakthrough was conducted in the quickest way possible, the dead and wounded remained on board throughout the night. Unlike Scapaflow, which is a barren and fairly desolate place, Wilhelmshaven was closer to populated areas. As soon as the high seas fleet returned home, the carnage was easily exposed. Piles of dead bodies littered the wharves, and an endless parade of ambulances zipped back and forth. The German government tried to prevent news from leaking, but there was no stopping it. The families of missing sailors were banging on doors, looking for any news of their loved ones' whereabouts. 
it was certainly the strangest victory anyone had ever seen. So let us now turn to our questions at hand. The first question concerns the human cost of the battle, and why, despite being outnumbered and outgunned, German losses were significantly lighter. On paper, the German high seas fleet won the Battle of Jutland. Of the 36,000 sailors manning its 99 vessels, 11 ships were lost at a cost of 2,551 men. The Germans lost one pre-dreadnought, the SMS Pomeran, one battlecruiser, Lutzau, four light cruisers, Frauenlob, Elbing, Weissbatten, and Rostock, plus five destroyers. British losses were much heavier. 60,000 men served at Jutland, and 6,097 were killed. Out of the 150 ships combined from Jellicoe and Beatty, the British Grand Fleet lost 14. Three battlecruisers, Indefatigable, Queen Mary, and Invincible, three armored cruisers, Defense, Black Prince, and Warrior, along with eight destroyers, most of which were lost during Shear's nocturnal breakthrough. Now, a note of caution on these statistics, some of these ships were lost after the battle, scuttled by their crews after they had been evacuated. I'll be posting a complete list and times up at the thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com, so if you want to fill in the blanks, I encourage you to take a look. Now that we have those numbers in front of us, let's go a little bit deeper. How do we end up with this tally? Any post-mortem of Jutland must first begin discussing why British warships were exploding on impact. Although German gunnery was superior, it wasn't like they could dead-eye weak points in the armor. So why is this so important? Well, of the 6,097 British dead, 5,107 were killed as a result of explosions consuming entire ships. There were five which met their terrible fate in this manner. Indefatigable, Queen Mary and Invincible, three battlecruisers, and the armored cruisers, Defense and Black Prince. The case of the armored cruisers is less perplexing. These were tin cans sunk at close range by state-of-the-art battleships. What we're concerned about are the battle cruisers. Why did hipper ships, which seemed to be hit time and time again, manage to stay afloat when three of Beatty's battlecruisers blew apart like fireworks? Part of the answer lays in the design philosophies of the opposing navies. When Alfred von Tirpitz set out to design Germany's first modern battle fleet, he did so with one principle in mind, that a ship's primary role is to stay afloat. And the Germans, the great builders that they are, took this advice very seriously. During the pre-war naval race, the Germans realized they would never outpace the British no matter what they tried. So instead, their engineers focused on making their ships damn near invincible. Their first decision was to forego heavy guns by placing a premium on protective armor and stability. In terms of armament, none of the German ships at Jutland were equipped with guns exceeding 12-inch caliber, while 18 of Jellicoe's battleships had guns 12-inch or higher. This preponderous advantage should have sealed the deal, but things would not be so easy. A side-by-side comparison here shows how sturdy the German ships were built. The battlecruiser Durflinger had a normal displacement of some 26,180 tons. Normal displacement meaning how much she weighed without a full load. She had 8 12-inch cannons and was protected by 12 inches of belt armor and 11-inch turret armor. Let's compare Durflinger then to Jellicoe's flagship, the battleship Iron Duke. Iron Duke had a normal displacement of 25,000 tons and 10 13.5-inch guns. However, her armor was the same as Durflinger, 12-inch side armor and 11-inch turret armor. German battlecruisers were built like British battleships. Now you might be saying, wait a minute, that's not fair. Iron Duke and Durflinger never saw much of each other. What about Beatty's battlecruisers? A fair point. Beatty's flagship, HMS Lion, 
was equal to Durflinger in terms of displacement, but was armed like Iron Duke. Lyon sported a fierce array of eight 13.5-inch guns, so she could pack a battleship's punch. But armor is the big difference here. Durflinger had 12 and 11 inches of protective steel, while Lyon only had 9-inch armor on her turrets and hull. This forms a constant theme. Hipper's flagship, Lutzow, had 12 and 11-inch armor, while Queen Mary had only 9 and 9 inches. These were contemporary ships. Queen Mary had been commissioned in September 1913, and Lutzow in March 1915. Although Jutland would claim both, their fates could not have been more opposite. Before she was scuttled at 2am on June the 1st, Lutzow had received a staggering 24 hits, but suffered only 165 casualties on board. Queen Mary, on the other hand, took less than a dozen hits and exploded. 1,258 men were instantly killed. Why this disparity? Armor only forms part of the answer. The designs of the hulls were also much different. Since the Germans would never outbuild the British, their response was to ensure their fleet remained intact. They had studied the designs of HMS Dreadnought and took note of a few design falls. The first concerned the width. In nautical terms, the width of a ship is known as the ship's beam, the measurement given between port and starboard at its widest point. Jellicoe's flagship, Iron Duke, and Beatty's flagship, Lion, had beam measurements of 90 and 88 feet respectively. Durflinger, a battlecruiser, had a beam length of 95 feet, the same as Reinhard Scheer's Dreadnought flagship. The wider beam on the German capital ships had major implications at Jutland. With the greater space, engineers were able to honeycomb the inner hull with numerous water and flash-tight compartments, sometimes twice the number available on British ships. The significance of this cannot be understated. Hull breaches were easier to isolate, thus minimizing damage and allowing the ship to remain afloat. Seidelitz, Durflinger, von der Tann, and Moltke had taken on several thousand tons of water by Jutland's end, yet all managed to return to port. But besides keeping a ship afloat, the wider beam allowed for better stability when firing the main battery. German gunners were thus able to maintain a more rhythmic level of fire than the British, who tended to shoot at a higher rate of the expense of accuracy. A sample of gunnery at Jutland shows this in action. From the onset of the run to the south, Beatty's battlecruisers had fired an average of 344 rounds per ship. Of those 344 rounds, only 36% found their mark. None fared worse than the battlecruiser New Zealand, which fired 420 rounds and scored just 4 hits. The Germans, on the other hand, fired 244 rounds per ship, scoring 53% of the time. The most dangerous, Durflinger, fired 385 shells from her main battery, yet scored 3 times as many hits in the first 12 minutes. The answer to why the British battlecruisers exploded lay in these numbers. Since the development of HMS Dreadnought, the Royal Navy had put all its faith in the big gun. Under his tenure as First Sea Lord, Jackie Fisher had maintained the Navy should abide by the pseudo-factual 3H rule, which, in Fisher's words, stood for hit first, hit hard, keep on hitting. Fisher's influence was reflected in every ship the Royal Navy rolled out between 1907 and 1918, bigger guns in greater speed to allow them to catch and pummel their opponents into submission. However, this had one serious drawback, which had disastrous consequences at Jutland. In order to maintain Fisher's vision, a cult of the big gun had been formed. The competence of a ship's crew was based entirely on their ability to fire off as many salvos as they could. Hit first, hit hard, keep on hitting. Naturally, this led to competition between squadrons, and gun crews were always on the lookout for shortcuts. Like the Germans, British designers constructed their ships with flash-proof doors in the turret towers 
These compartments were designed to minimize the chance of flash risk, where if an explosion occurred inside the turret, the flames would be contained before reaching the magazine stores below. Think of it like a giant stick of dynamite. Flash risk was nothing new by the naval standards of the time. However, British gun crews felt these protocols were too cumbersome, and the bulkhead slowed their ability to reload efficiently. As a result, these safety measures were removed, allowing for an unobstructed and more freewheeling style of gunnery. This proved to be the difference at Jutland. British shells pierced the turrets on German battlecruisers. Seidlitz and Durflinger suffered the loss of gun crews when flash transmissions incinerated the men inside. But with the flash guards in place, the damage was isolated, which kept the ship afloat. However, when German shells pierced the British turrets, the results were far worse. With none of the bulkheads in place, a shell burst was able to ignite the exposed cordite, sending a bolt of flame straight down the hoist and into the magazine. When the flame reached its destination, no one on board had a chance. 83% of all British casualties were caused in this manner. Had the battlecruisers maintained these measures, it is generally agreed things would have turned out much differently. So although British losses support the argument of a German victory, it should be noted they are inflated by a misplaced philosophy. No one at Jutland expected these ships to blow up as they did, and the horror of witnessing the scene was mutual on both sides. If anything, British casualties were higher because hubris had set them up. The high seas fleet thus capitalized on an opportunity they did not know they had. The shots which destroyed the battlecruisers were not preordained. German ships suffered the same impacts, but with their safety measures in place, their effects were minimized. For lack of a better word, the British were caught cheating, and their punishment came in the form of 5,107 men who died in these infernos. After an urgent telegram from David Beatty, Jellicoe ordered that all flash doors be reverted to their original placements. At least, a lesson had been learned. What is perhaps the most damning criticism of John Jellicoe is that he let the German fleet escape, and his critics certainly have a powerful case against him. Twice, he had crossed the T of the enemy. Twice, he submitted them to a massive bombardment, and twice, the enemy had escaped. But let's not forget that as nightfall descended, the Grand Fleet was in the best position it had been in all day. If Shearer decided to run for Horn's Reef, he would need to somehow sneak through the British barrier, a seemingly impossible task given the situation. If he opted to avoid battle, the British were perfectly situated to resume the fight by first light. Either way, their German fleet was trapped. Now as we saw in the last episode, neither of these two options played out as predicted. Shearer did lunge for Horn's Reef, but he did so in a way that was anything but subtle. The lingering question I want to return to is how this was possible. We mentioned part of the answer last time, that Jellicoe prescribed the night battles to be the destroyer engagement he assumed would happen. But this does not explain why the other captains were indifferent to the action. How do 100 warships cross the path of another 150 warships without a single call being made? The reason Jutland was not another Trafalgar was because the Grand Fleet fell asleep at the wheel, figuratively and literally. It is simply remarkable how the command system collapsed. In short, Shear was able to escape because the Grand Fleet lost the nerve to pursue. Now I know that's a pretty bold statement, so let's back up a bit. As we saw before, Jellicoe was correct in ordering the Grand Fleet to avoid night actions. British sailors were not equipped nor trained to fight nocturnal battles, and knowing the Germans had no trouble in that regard, he was not about to give them the advantage, especially since the strategic situation remained in his favor. So wanting to maintain fleet supremacy, he closed up shop and held off until morning. As Shear's dreadnoughts charged their way through the flotillas, their presence had not gone undetected. At least nine battleship captains reported seeing enemy dreadnoughts, 
yet none made an effort to pass this information on to the commander. How and what the heck happened? To begin, we need to back up even further. Jellico was a cautious and defensive-minded tactician. His primary task was ensuring the Grand Fleet remained at the top of the totem pole, and the destruction of the German fleet remained second. When Jellico took command in August 1914, he introduced a highly centralized command system. One of the first things he did was implement a series of contingency plans, outlining how the Grand Fleet would operate in any given situation. What began as a small project soon ballooned into something much greater, and by the time of Jutland, the playbook had expanded into a 200-page document entitled The Grand Fleet Battle Orders, the foundation of which Jellicoe's tactical policy was built. The Grand Fleet Battle Orders, or GFBOs as I'll refer to them from here on out, were developed to prepare the fleet for any and all situations it may encounter, kind of like a worst-case scenario survival handbook. The GFBOs were issued to every squadron commander in the fleet, and any admiral worth his salt was to have read the document and understood its contents therein. This centralized, statesmanlike structure was one of the stickier points of Jellicoe's command. Some admirals, notably David Beatty and the late Horace Hood, felt they were too restricted and limited the offensive spirit which was so precious to men like Nelson or Fisher. The GFBOs worked well enough, but it was at Jutland when their limitations were exposed. Jellicoe's first error was that he built his policy on one assumption that the Germans were interested in fighting a pitched battle. Jellicoe never considered the possibility they would adopt a piecemeal style of attack, thus avoiding the Grand Fleet altogether. But Jellicoe was not alone in this assumption, as most Royal Navy officers fully anticipated a Trafalgar-style showdown, aka a battle fought on their terms and their terms only. Hubris indeed. The irony here is that the GFBOs actually ascribed greater strength to the German fleet than the Germans ever had. And with all the technological innovations advancing, both navies had no idea what to expect when the day finally arrived. In preparing for their encounter, both Jellicoe and Scheer turned to history for help, but found its pages were relatively blank. In terms of fleet actions, there wasn't much to go from. The battles at Dogger Bank, Coronel, and the Falklands were small in comparison to Jutland. In total, some 250 ships were involved at Jutland, compared to 73 at the Dogger Bank, and just 15 at the Falklands, neither of which involved dreadnought battleships. The closest example was dated back to the Russo-Japanese War, the Battle of Tsushima Strait, which was the largest fleet engagement until May 1916. Some 127 ships were involved, including what were then state-of-the-art battleships. But by Jutland, every one of the ships involved at Tsushima were outdated. HMS Dreadnought would not be designed for another two years. By then, the speed, distance, and firepower of warships had improved several fold. Wireless communication, although still in its infancy, had taken on a larger role. Getting back to Jellicoe and the GFBOs, the commander-in-chief was thus facing a here-be-monsters in terms of what a modern naval battle had in store. New weapons, which were just exiting the realm of science fiction in 1905, ocean-going submarines, torpedoes, and mines, were very much a reality by the time Jellicoe took over, and so he was perfectly justified in his cautious approach. Unlike the land war, where generals have been accused of underestimating the impact of technology, Jellicoe has often been accused of overestimating the same developments at sea. Many of you have no doubt heard the expression of being overcoached. You hear it a lot in sports when a player's skill is underutilized to fit a coach's strategy. Well, Jellicoe had a tendency to overcoach his admirals, to the point where many believed it restricted individual initiative. To protect the Grand Fleet from the unknown, the CNC had adopted a father-knows-best approach. His system was highly centralized. Every order had to be transmitted and approved by him before any actions were taken. 
This was the direct opposite to Germany's naval command, where admirals were given a greater deal of flexibility. At Jutland, Reinhard Scheer had every confidence in his officers and crew, while Jellicoe had his reservations. He wasn't tyrannical, but his structure was based on policy and regulation, and he expected his officers to obey without reserve. What happened during the night of May the 31st was a case of complacency and lack of initiative gone wild. When Jellicoe sent the order, no night actions, his admirals, officers, and crew assumed they would be in for a quiet evening. Jellicoe had stated his opposition to nocturnal fights in the GFBOs, so no sailor was surprised by the suspension of action. Even as Shear barged his way home, the Grand Fleet watched the dazzle of gun flashes in a sort of trance. The action at the flotillas had been expected, so there was no emergency. The thunder rolled on for over an hour, and the fleet continued on course. The destroyer captains can be excused for not communicating their situation. They are in a fight for their lives against enemy dreadnoughts, so sending a wireless was probably low on the priority list. However, the same cannot be said for other ships in the same vicinity, the closest being the battle squadron of Admiral Hugh Evan Thomas. One of Evan Thomas's ships, HMS Malaya, recorded seeing a large German battleship just before midnight. The ship in question was none other than the SMS Westfallen, which was the head of Scheer's vanguard. Unwilling to expose his squadron to the enemy, Malaya's captain did the safest thing. He assumed, wrongly as it turned out, that if he could see Westfallen, then surely Evan Thomas could as well, and he was not about to open fire without permission from his senior commander. Instead of reporting his sighting, Malaya's captain held his breath, and when no order from Evan Thomas arrived, he watched the German battleship disappear into the gloom. Scenes like this played out numerous times throughout the night. The German battlecruisers, Seidelitz and Moltke, passed right under the nose of a pair of battleships, HMS Marlborough and Thunderer. The captains of these battleships did nothing, and the Germans were able to drift by like an awkward joke. The Grand Fleet had succumbed to one false assumption, that the highly centralized John Jellicoe was aware of everything. Although Scheer's fleet had been spotted, lookouts indicated they had not been able to identify the phantom ships with any certainty. The individual captains thus decided that a torrent of wireless messages reporting only partial information would cause more confusion than necessary. However, Jellicoe does share a bit of blame in this, because not once did he request an update on what was happening. The action on his destroyers was expected. After all, that was why he positioned them there in the first place. But at any time throughout the night, an update request originating from Iron Duke would have alerted the fleet that something was seriously wrong. Nothing of the sort happened. From Jellicoe himself down to the lowest-ranking seamen, the men of the Grand Fleet passed the night assuming everything was going as planned. So let us now turn to our final task, the performance of our admirals, and based on our findings, what the Battle of Jutland meant for the war as a whole. The most efficient way in judging a commander's performance is by measuring their achievement of purpose, if they accomplished what they set out to do. Since the Battle of Jutland was the result of a German offensive, we'll start with them. The performance of Admiral Franz Hipper was flawless in every sense of the word. Hipper's objective was to snag a significant portion of the Grand Fleet and lure it onto the massed guns of Scheer's dreadnoughts. Hipper had completed his task admirably. Not only had he coaxed Beattie into battle, but the most significant British losses were the result of Hipper's squadron. Indefatigable, Queen Mary, Invincible, Defense, and Warrior all met their end at the hands of his battlecruisers. In the hard-fought history of Jutland, Franz Hipper is the least talked about participant. This is a testament to his mistake-free performance, as historians have had a hard time calling any of his decisions into question. Vice Admiral Reinhard Scheer is a more difficult case. 
If we are to surmise Scheer's objective into a single sentence, it was to overcome and destroy a portion of the British fleet before Jellicoe arrived on the scene. In this, Scheer completed none of his objectives. The reason his plan nearly worked was because he had the services of Franz Hipper, perhaps the best admiral of the First World War. None of Scheer's 18 dreadnoughts succeeded in sinking a capital ship throughout the operation. Only the obsolete Black Prince and a handful of destroyers fell victim, all of which came at night when they were grossly outgunned. In one of Jutland's more ironic twists, it was Scheer's decision to pursue beating northward which ended any hope he had for victory. Had the High Seas Fleet called it a day after the run to the south, they would have had a strong argument that the Skagrak operation was a success. Instead, Scheer plunged in full pursuit, allowing himself to fall victim to his own devices. That said, however, Scheer deserves full marks for getting his fleet home safely. His first emergency about turn at 6.36pm was conducted skillfully, and his nocturnal breakthrough, although a last-ditch resort, had showcased the discipline of German seamanship. Where historians have been most critical of the German admiral was his second about turn at 7pm, the second attack which Robert Massey described as the most useless naval assault of the Great War. By charging his now battered fleet back against the British, Scheer only succeeded in punishing his ships further. It did little to change the overall picture except to prove the Grand Fleet was not a figment of his imagination. Had Scheer not ordered the second about turn, the Battle of Jutland probably would have played out a bit different. In short, Reinhard Scheer gets a lot of credit I don't think he deserves. It was Hipper's formation which did the heavy lifting, while Scheer toiled in the back. His extraction of the high seas fleet is impressive, however taking solace in a successful retreat is not something to write home about. Unlike the Germans, the British admirals had the weight of an empire on their shoulder. A German defeat at sea would have had little impact overall, but if the Grand Fleet was to be bested then it would have sparked a national crisis. Vice Admiral David Beatty then flirted on the precipice of defeat. His performance in the run to the south was sloppy and disjointed right from the get-go. His first error was failing to concentrate his force. The recent addition of Evan Thomas's 5th Battle Squadron had given Beatty a decisive advantage which he failed to consolidate. His fighting admiral mentality got the best of him that afternoon. By charging headfirst after Franz Hipper, Beatty allowed his opponent, who should have been outnumbered 10 to 5, level the field down to a 6-5 parity. Had the 15-inch guns of Evan Thomas's formation been included from the beginning, Franz Hipper most likely would have said thanks but no thanks and turned right around. Gripped in his pursuit of Hipper, David Beatty had also failed in arguably his most important task, informing the Grand Fleet of his course and intention. For a full two hours, Jellicoe had no idea where Beatty was headed, forcing him to dispatch Horace Hood to seek him out. In the Jotland controversy, Beatty's defenders often argued that, regardless of his mistakes, he succeeded in luring the High Seas Fleet to Jellicoe. In this, there can be no doubt. The problem, however, is that there are significant amendments which should be addressed. The first thing is that Beatty was the benefactor of perfect timing. During the run to the south, Hipper had gotten the leg up time and time again. Beatty's squadron most likely would have suffered further catastrophe had it not been for the late arrival of Evan Thomas. The Super Dreadnoughts were able to join battle because their 15-inch guns had a range of 19,000 yards, far beyond the reach of Hippers. Their well-timed arrival forced Hipper to break off battle and helped give the British some much-needed momentum. Although it did not prevent the loss of Queen Mary, it did give British gunners enough time to shake out the cobwebs and regain their footing. Their gunnery was much improved from there on out. The second well-timed intervention was Horace Hood's 3rd Battle Squadron, which allowed Jellicoe to complete his deployment and thus ensure Beatty retained a popular reputation. 
Hood's arrival at that crucial moment helped save the fleet from being caught unprepared. Beatty was able to retake his position in the van, while the first squadrons completed their deployment. And if you were to argue that Beatty was successful in bringing the Germans to Jellicoe, you should also point out that he never informed Jellicoe he was on his way. As you'll recall, the first time Jellicoe saw Beatty was at 6pm, and it was not until 6.15 when he was able to report a location of the German vanguard. This gave Jellicoe just 20 minutes to decide on a port or starboard deployment. If anything, BD had lost the enemy, and was only able to find it once it arrived on the doorstep. To be fair, however, the run to the south was a violent and chaotic clash. BD lost his wireless early, and the smoke from fast-churning funnels and burning ships made for poor visibility, so some communication errors can be excused. But the same gaps in communication occurred within his own squadron, which are less easy to justify. The reason Hipper was able to get the jump was because Beatty's fire distribution was a mess. At the start of the run to the south, none of the battle cruisers were firing on their assigned targets, and this cannot be blamed on the sun being in their eyes. Beatty failed to prep his squadron, and as its senior commander, this fault lays at his feet and his feet only. Some argue David Beatty had seen red, and was willing to endanger his squadron if it meant enhancing his personal reputation. I think such criticisms are unfair, but considering how quickly he climbed the chain of command, I can't help but wonder if emotion, inexperience, or a combination of both, played a role in these early parts of the battle. Did Beatty succeed in his task? Yes, he located the enemy and drew them onto Jellicoe, but it was not the smooth and easy delivered prize it is often described as. He lost two out of six battlecruisers and never operated as a cohesive unit with Evan Thomas, which together could have blown Hipper clear out of the water. However, he should be commended on salvaging the situation, and giving the high seas fleet one hell of a fight during the run to the north. Never one to shy away from a challenge, Beatty's performance was typical Beatty. The fact he lured the Germans back to Jellicoe was the tipping point of the battle. David Beatty did not deliver victory, but he ensured the Grand Fleet had every opportunity. But what of Admiral John Jellicoe, the man tasked with ensuring the survival of the Grand Fleet and protecting English waters? Jellicoe did not deliver the Nelsonian victory everyone assumed. The High Seas Fleet was not sent to the bottom, and it remained a threat which the Admiralty could not afford to discount. No participant at Jutland, whether English or German, receives the same level of unwarranted punishment as Jellicoe. The failures of Room 40's deciphering department, coupled with the inability of his subordinates to keep him informed, had a major impact on how the CNC conducted battle. At no time was he given accurate intelligence regarding the enemy location. Even if the information turned out to be correct, a precedent had been formed which proved difficult to overcome. Now you could argue that this was partly Jellicoe's fault, as it was his decision to decide what to make of the information. Certainly, there may be an argument to be had there, but by subscribing to that theory, you are overlooking some glaring issues. Room 40's failure to report the presence of the German battle fleet was just the tip of the iceberg. An error of this magnitude could have had catastrophic results. The Germans could never destroy the British fleet in its entirety, but had Jellicoe been caught unprepared, it is very likely his battleships would have suffered enormous damage, thus weakening the blockade and giving Germany a new lease. If John Jellicoe is to be blamed for anything, it was his inability to bend to circumstance. Jellicoe conducted the battle by the book, and anyone who questions his tactics should note that his GFBOs made no secret of his intentions. Nothing he did at Jutland came as a surprise. However, does that mean his decisions were correct? In my personal opinion, Jellicoe's greatest error was not unleashing his battleships following the second German withdrawal. For this, we need to point out a few things. 
Jellicoe's GFBOs clearly stated his intention to turn the fleet away in the face of a torpedo attack. You'll recall, he made good on this when the Germans turned away the first time just after 6.30. Again, no one in the fleet was surprised. But when the Germans reappeared, the men of the Grand Fleet felt it was too good to be true. They were already deployed and waiting. Their opportunity to destroy the enemy had finally arrived. But when Jellicoe again refused the chase, citing his fear of mines and torpedoes, it left many scratching their heads. There are two reasons why I find this puzzling. The ineffectiveness of the first torpedo attack should have told them that the enemy's destroyer strength had been grossly overstated. The result of the second bombardment had further weakened the high seas fleet. Hipper's battlecruisers were floating wrecks, and many of the battleships received significant damage. At that moment, the high seas fleet was in disarray and ripe for the picking. Had Jellicoe taken off the reins, it is very likely Hipper's battlecruisers and at least half a dozen German battleships would have been sunk. There were still two hours of daylight left, and knowing the Germans had a nighttime advantage, Jellicoe could have switched into an offensive mode and attempted to destroy as much of the enemy as possible. Instead, the commander-in-chief stuck to his philosophy, and Scheer was able to escape. But with that in mind, we must never forget Jellicoe's primary task, maintaining the blockade and guarding the hegemony of the Grand Fleet. In this, Jellicoe was most successful. Only two battleships took any sort of damage, both of which made it home safely under their own devices. Not only had Jellicoe guaranteed the survival of the Grand Fleet, but he also succeeded in driving the enemy into retreat. With his battle fleet deployed, the Germans never stood a chance, and Jellicoe won the Battle of Jutland through a show of imposing force. Although he had the opportunity to become the next Horatio Nelson, John Jellicoe was not to be tempted. He saw the battle not just as a contest of tactics, but a wider struggle between two empires. He judged that annihilating the German fleet posed too great a risk to his own. With the blockade in place, he knew it would only be a matter of time before Germany was sapped of her willpower. As naval historian Herbert Richmond noted, quote, It is absolutely necessary to look at the war as a whole, to avoid keeping our eyes only on the German fleet. What we have to do is starve and cripple Germany, to destroy Germany. The destruction of the German fleet is a means to an end, and not an end in itself. If endeavoring to destroy the German fleet, we run risks which may prejudice the greater object, those risks are too great. End quote. Who won the Battle of Jutland? The British did, and they did so decisively. The Germans might claim favorable casualties, but the reality was they did nothing to further their own cause. In the aftermath, the High Seas fleet was crippled, and Scheer was unable to report it battle-ready until August. Jellicoe, on the other hand, could report 26 battleships and 6 battlecruisers ready for sea, just 12 hours after returning to port. After repairs and construction were completed, the Grand Fleet advantage would swell further. By the beginning of 1917, the Grand Fleet would consist of 31 battleships and 7 battlecruisers, while the Germans could count just 18 battleships and 4 battlecruisers. Jutland was decisive because it altered the course of the war. Although he put on his best possible face, the plain truth was that Reinhard Scheer was haunted by the experiences of that day. Seeing the full might of the British fleet materialize before him, guns blazing as it crossed the tee of his battleships, was the very nightmare which cost him many a night's sleep. He saw firsthand the power of the Royal Navy, and he understood that Germany was not up to the challenge. As historian Arthur Herman eloquently put it, quote, As Scheer gazed out at the flashing fire along the horizon, he saw before him the entire history of the British Navy. At that fateful moment, Scheer was not confronting John Jellicoe, but the ghosts of Nelson, Howe, Rodney, Drake, and the rest. End quote. 
While in public he remained a confident leader, behind doors he had lost that keen edge which set him apart from previous commanders. Scheer knew he could not gamble a second time. His strategy to isolate and destroy sections of the Grand Fleet was risky in itself, and it was clear the English were not going to give him the opportunity to do so. A common fallacy is that the High Seas Fleet never came out again after Jutland. This is untrue. While Germany was basking in the glow of its supposed triumph, there was immense pressure on Scheer and Franz Hipper to pursue a follow-up operation. The first attempt came on August 18, 1916, and was a carbon copy of the pre-Jutland plans. Hipper raids the English coast and lures the British onto Scheer. There were three attempts at this, and none which produced results. Room 40 was able to warn the coastal squadrons, forcing the Germans to withdraw before contact was made. For Germany, Jutland was a one-off the single opportunity to weaken the blockade and relieve pressure on her struggling infrastructure. While the land war remained an open question, the war at sea had been lost. The British were all too happy to maintain the blockade and continue its strangulation of Germany's economic and military power. As the weeks and then months rolled on, it was clear that something had to be done. Convinced that surface ships alone would not be enough to break the blockade, on July the 4th, Scheer proposed the resumption of unrestricted submarine warfare. In his request to the Kaiser, the Admiral made his case as clear as day, writing, quote, A victorious end to the war at a not-too-distant date can only be looked for by the crushing of English economic life through U-boat action, end quote. For the remainder of the year, German leadership batted the U-boat idea back and forth. Initially, Scheer wanted to adopt a hybrid system, where U-boats operated closely with the battle fleet. The results of the experiment were mixed. The difference in speed between submarine and surface ship remained a nagging issue. More difficult was sinking the two weapons together. Once the submarines were deployed, there was always a chance of them being spotted, meaning the fleet had to decide whether a surface operation was worth the risk. Bad weather, English scouts, and fuel concerns all needed consideration before orders were sent. Shearer's hybrid system was brought to an end once the British began to catch on, and by October it was all over. A German light cruiser was torpedoed while on patrol near Wilhelmshaven. The proximity of the attack told Scheer that it was part of a British ambush, and he immediately scrapped all plans for service operations. Both he and Kaiser Wilhelm agreed that fleet sorties were no longer worth the risk, and the high seas fleet was again relegated to inactivity. For the British, the Battle of Jutland was more academic than anything else. With the blockade at full strength, the events of the battle did not change the way the Admiralty fought nor did it have any serious consequences on Britain's war effort. To say that Britain shrugged off Jutland is not an overstatement. The controversies which surround the battle are largely based on superfluous grounds, and the reason they exist is because the High Seas Fleet managed to escape. The fact that German fleet survived was enough to convince many that Jutland was a defeat. Comparisons to Trafalgar are a dime a dozen, but one is to question whether a victory in such style was even possible. Nelson commanded 27 ships at Trafalgar while BD had 41, Jellicoe 98, and Shear 61. This say nothing of the difference in speed, distance, and firepower. For example, Nelson's speed of approach at Trafalgar was 1 to 3 knots. During the run to the south, BD and Hipper were fighting at speeds of 25 to 30 knots. To close the book on Jutland, I think Britain's greatest error was not tactical. Jellicoe and BD's performances have their share of criticisms, but the Empire's stubborn belief in the Nelsonian touch had set their admirals to a standard few could emulate. There are two key misconceptions. The first is that Trafalgar did not happen overnight. It was not accidental. 
and only came after Nelson spent the better part of a year zipping back and forth in pursuit of the French. The fact the battle took place over an afternoon tends to overshadow this. The second misconception is more important. Trafalgar did not mark the end of Napoleonic France. As a famous French philosopher put it, Bonaparte was the master of Europe, but he was also a prisoner there. With her access to maritime trade cut off, Imperial Germany leaned heavily on her continental allies. Austria-Hungary was barely able to feed herself, and the presence of French and Italian vessels blockading the Adriatic offered little hope of relief. Ottoman Turkey and Bulgaria were likewise not able to be the breadbasket of the Central Powers. Neutral countries, like the Netherlands, Denmark, Sweden, and Norway, were options. Yet Germany's demands had shaped them the wrong way. British naval influence, coupled with American anger after the Lusitania, had caused her Baltic trade partners to re-examine their relationship. For Germany, the clock was ticking. While the English did not get their Trafalgar, the Battle of Jutland was nevertheless crucial in the path to Allied victory. It convinced the Germans that their prized navy was a dull sword, and the only way to challenge Britain's oceanic supremacy was to revert back to U-boat warfare. This time, however, U-boats were available in much greater numbers, and were capable of striking Allied shipping at its heart. It was a gamble which nearly paid off. The U-boat campaign of 1917 brought a crisis in Britain, but it would cost Germany the most in the end. American anger would boil over, and in April 1917, their entry into the war would turn the tide decisively in the Entente's favor. Germany's dream of challenging Great Britain for control of the seas died at Jutland. Its proud fleet would be left to rust while the population fell deeper into depravity. The German sailor, whose discipline was on full display at Jutland, would lose all will to fight. The finely tuned war machine, removed from all hope of influence, would become the ideal place for dissension and weariness to spread. A London journalist had best surmised the post-Jutland situation. The prisoner had assaulted its jailer, but was now safely back in its cell. In the next episode, we're going to hop back over to the mainland and get ourselves caught up to what's been happening there. At Verdun, a renewed German offensive to capture Fort Vaux had pushed the French army to the brink. In Tyrol, the Austrians and Italians continued to pound each other along the Asiago Plateau. But it was in the east where things were about to heat up. On June the 4th, the Galatian Front would erupt once again, as a coordinated Russian attack, 650,000 men, backed by 1,938 guns, would smash against the Austrian frontier. Named after its architect, Alexei Alexeyevich Brusilov, the Russian assault marked the beginning of the general Allied offensive, the long-held strategy laid out at Chantilly the previous year. At an appalling loss of life, it was the Entente's first successful breakthrough of the war, and sent the Austrian army into a tailspin of which it never recovered. Things were about to get very interesting. That's it for this week. Be sure to check out our website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com. Listener feedback is greatly appreciated, so if you have any questions or comments, you can follow us on Twitter at Great War Podcast, or reach us through email, thegreatwarpodcast at outlook.com. This week, I would like to extend a thank you to listener Kenneth, who recently donated to the show. Thank you very much to Kenneth and to all the others who have generously donated. If you are interested in making a donation, you'll find the button up on the homepage. This will go to help cover the cost of acquiring sources and ensure the show delivers the most accurate and up-to-date research available. Another way to help out is to look us up on iTunes and leave a 5-star review. iTunes charts their podcast based on the number of user reviews, so the more feedback we have, the higher we place. This will help keep us afloat in the rankings and help attract new listeners. 
This has been episode 41 of the Great War Podcast, and we'll see you again shortly.